Last Sunday, our magnificent choir had me pondering on the words of the Dies Irae, that classic medieval sequence hymn about the day of days. Perhaps you noticed its powerful lyrics as well. It went something like this. What dread there will be when the judge shall come to judge all things strictly. A trumpet spreading a wondrous sound throughout the graves of all lands will drive mankind before the throne. A book written in will be brought forth in which is contained everything that is, out of which the world shall be judged. When, therefore, the judge takes his seat, whatever is hidden will reveal itself. Nothing will remain unavenged. What then shall I say, wretch that I am? What a scene it paints. What powerful words. Life comes with a final exam. This is what we Christians believe and profess each week in the Nicene Creed. And that on exam day, everything will be laid bare. Nothing will remain hidden. Although it's easy to distract ourselves from the discomfort of that thought or the thought that we might have had reading through the passages this morning in the Old Testament, if we stick with it a little while, we might find ourselves asking some very natural questions. What exactly did God put me on this earth for in the first place? What am I supposed to be doing between now and that day? How will I know if I'm ready for the big exam? With the psalmist, we might say, so teach us to apply our hearts to wisdom, O Lord. So teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. Life is short. Are we directing our lives to their true purpose or are we drifting along aimlessly? I remember feeling like that when I finished college, actually. Ten long years of it in higher education much too long. My decision-making had been guided by a class syllabus for almost half of my life up to that point. And suddenly, out in the real world, there was no syllabus. I mean, I knew that God wanted me to be a priest, generally, and what that involved, but no longer did I have a document directing my every move. I felt totally lost at sea, adrift. I kept having these terrible dreams where I suddenly realized that it was halfway through the semester and I had not shown up for a single class and I didn't have any of the assignments done and I was woefully prepared for the final exam. I can't remember if my dream self was wearing pants at that point or not, but you get the idea. I'm sure many of you have had similar dreams. There was nothing like the security of having a syllabus that laid out clear expectations for me as a student. It helped me order my time and my habits, prioritize projects and choices, and judge what kind of progress I was making against an objective scale. I knew exactly what materials or books I was expected to master by my teacher, and I knew the path to making my teacher happy. And if I didn't do that, that was my fault. There were no major surprises. It was a beautiful thing. Almost without exception, my best teachers took care to design excellent syllabi for their students. It was the only fair way to expect progress of them from the beginning of the term to the end. 
It's no different, of course, with our own Lord and teacher, Jesus Christ. In these past couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been talking to his students about the end of the world and the final exam that they must be prepared for. So in today's parable, Jesus is handing us a syllabus. And like any syllabus, there will be three parts that we're looking for. First of all, here's what you're working with, our class materials. Second, here's what I expect you to do with them, the assignments. And third, these are the rewards for success and the consequences for failure, the grades. Now, let's get to it. First of all, what are we working with? What are our class materials? In the parable, Jesus says, It is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Now the man in Jesus' parable is, of course, himself. And the journey he describes is his coming ascension back to the throne at the right hand of the Father. And the servants are us, his disciples. The image that Jesus is giving us here is of the master carefully and shrewdly sizing up each one of his servants, or if you prefer, the teacher evaluating his students for their capabilities beforehand and making targeted and specific investments in each one of them based on what he knows they're capable of handling. It's almost like how a wise stock investor would evaluate the earnings potential of each stock in his or her portfolio and then invest accordingly. As the parable says, he gave to each according to his ability. Although he invests a fantastic sum into each one of these servants, a single talent of gold was worth about as much as a laborer could hope to make an entire lifetime, probably more than a million dollars in today's money. However, they're not all equal. He gives to one servant five talents, to another two, to another one. It's not even close to being equal. The master is less concerned with equity in a basic sense than he is with making prudent investments that can make him gain. What that means is that before he created you, our Lord and Master carefully handpicked the investment that he would make in you, personally. There were no accidents. There were no mistakes. What you have received from his hand he meant for you to have. This is step one in our syllabus. With gratitude, we need to humbly take stock of the talents that we have been entrusted with, or as they say, count your blessings. What has God given to me? Well, he's given us existence, reason, our health, family, friends, our education, our wealth, and other resources, so much free time and leisure, a capacity and an interest in art or music or administration or public speaking, whatever it might be. Now, I think this is something that we Christians need to be told. It is not pride to notice you're the five-talent guy, if that's what God has given you. 
There's no room for boasting if we see that it is God's gift and investment. And as we're about to see, that every gift implies not just privilege, but greater responsibility. This is something that all of us can perhaps be doing carefully this Thanksgiving week, making a list and counting the specific blessings that God has entrusted us with in our lives, the talents that have been entrusted to us, invested in us. We also need to humbly acknowledge the truth that no matter how self-made we think we are, and indeed we might have worked hard and made a great deal of ourselves in our lives, that all of this is still the master's property. You did not give yourself life and existence. You did not keep your heart beating or your lungs breathing or your neurons firing all these years. You didn't create the institutions that educated you or the knowledge of the arts and sciences that you received. All of these things God has allowed us for the sake of his own purposes. And once we realize this clearly, that they are his gifts, then we can properly give thanks to him for them. Now, there's this classic prayer in our prayer books, a great prayer that I try and pray almost daily. It's called the Prayer of General Thanksgiving. Not a particularly glamorous name, but it's a lovely prayer. As you pray it, you can almost picture yourself standing next to the servants in Jesus' parable, saying, Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, thine unworthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all of the blessings of this life, taking stock of all of those blessings. But above all, above all, Lord, we give thanks to thee for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, for the hope of glory. Here's the key, really. The greatest gift that we have received, something which we had nothing to do with, which happened thousands of years before we were even born, is the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ and the means that God has provided us to enjoy the fruits of that redemption here and now, which our tradition calls the means of grace. What are those regular and reliable means of God's grace in our lives? The Holy Scriptures and the sacraments of the church. Christ has given us the gift of his word in the Scriptures and in the Gospels by which we can come to know him and the gift of his very life in the sacraments of the church. Not only has he given us these precious gifts, they're more available to us as 21st century Christians than they have been to practically any other generation in any other place in the world. Just a few centuries ago, you would have been lucky to receive the Eucharist more than three times a year, or to even hear the scriptures read aloud in a language you could understand. The Father of all mercies has given us all of these blessings. He has made such a tremendous investment in us, not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all. Now what does he expect us to do with these blessings? This is our second point, our assignments. The second section in any syllabus includes the assignments for the course and the content of the exams. The assignment that Christ has given us is actually quite simple. 
He wants to see a return on the extravagant investment that he has made in each one of us. It turns out that life is kind of like a practical economics course of the kingdom of God. He wants to see us become the person that he created and redeemed us to be for the growth and glory of his kingdom. And so the parable says, After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. We will be held responsible to God for what we did with everything we received at his hand. Here's what he wants to know. Did we give him a return on his investment? As the 4th century church father, St. John Chrysostom, once said, God is covetous with regard to our salvation. God is covetous with regard to our salvation. Translation, God is a shrewd, unashamed capitalist when it comes to his grace. He gives to each generously. He's by no means stingy with his investments. But he wants to see a specific investment in you bear fruit for others. He will ask us, what did you do with the gifts that I endowed you with at birth? Your family connections, your education, your intelligence, your capacity for hard work, your health, your time, your abilities, and so on? More importantly, what did you do with my self-revelation in the Scriptures and with all the sermons you've heard through your life? Did you apply it to yourself? What did you do with the freedom and forgiveness of sins that I won for you in my redemption and the shedding of my own precious blood? Or with the communion of my own sacred life in the sacraments? Did you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? As Jesus himself says in Luke 12:48, to whom much is given, the more will be required. And we know from Matthew 28 what fruit he's ultimately looking for. As he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, finally, the last part of a syllabus is concerned with grading, namely rewards for success and consequences for failure. So we hear in the parable that on that day of reckoning, the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you handed to me five talents. Look, I have five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will place you over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And likewise, the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. Look, I have made two more. And the master, likewise, gave him the same praise. Notice that the teacher doesn't grade on a curve with others. He's not flunking two-talent guy for not making a five-talent return. He doesn't expect that of him. Nor is he giving a standardized one-size-fits-all test. Under four talents return, you're out of heaven. See ya. Converted less than 20 sinners, sorry, you didn't make the cut. Like any good teacher, his delight is to see us make progress with what we have been given. 
He's not expecting the same things of us as he is of a 12th century Mongolian peasant. The Lord is covetous of the investments he made in you. Too much of our time and energy is often wasted wishing we had somebody else's gifts or that our circumstances were different from what they were. If we could just embrace the reality of what God has handed to me, however difficult, with gratitude and trust that God knew exactly what would be necessary and most beneficial for our salvation and that of those around us, then we could take all of that wasted energy and spend it trying to be faithful with what we actually have. And so many of our worries would just evaporate like smoke. I've heard this beautiful story. I love telling it and retelling it. It's the story of a 12th century Greek monk in a monastery. He came to this monastery sometime in his early 20s and presented himself to the abbot, told him his story, and the abbot, considering decided to give him an assignment. He placed him as the porter of the monastery, the doorkeeper, basically like an usher. Now it quickly became known to the other brother monks and to the unfortunate guests that this brother was a raging alcoholic and a belligerent one. His uh, terrible breath and even worse temper chased out many of the poor guests to the monastery and brought down the reputation of that place quite a bit. Now, some years later, 16 years later, in fact, the other brothers of the monastery checked in on the front gate and found poor brother dead on the floor. They quickly went and reported the fact to the father abbot, saying, Father, with great relief, by the way, Father, finally, brother has kicked the bucket. We can get somebody better on that door duty and, well, the guests might be happy again and our reputation might increase. And Father Abbott replied, Brothers, I already know he has died. You see, I saw in the vision this morning the angels carrying his soul up to heaven. Now the brothers were astonished at this. They said, Surely this brother, we're talking about the same guy, Right? Like, this guy, he's got to be going to destruction. I mean, look at what he did with his life. And the abbot told the brothers, here's what you don't know about his story. When he came to me 16 years ago, he shared this with me, that all his childhood through, he had been abused by those around him. With his mother's milk, he received stiff drinks to keep him silent, keep him from crying. All his life through, he was dependent upon that alcohol. When he first came to this monastery at a young age, he was drinking 20 stiff drinks a day. 20. Each year at Easter, he vowed to give up one of those drinks. By the time he died, by the time his liver finally gave out, he was down to four. He was down to four. You didn't see the struggle that he was making every day the grace that he was working with. I kind of picture that guy as maybe not a one-talent guy, but more like a one-copper-coin guy. Coming to the master at the end of days and saying, Look, master, you entrusted me with one copper coin. I've made one more. And the master says, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. 
you have been faithful over a little. I will put you in charge over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. You've made Dean's List. Come into the teacher's lounge and have lunch with us. Come be one of us. Part of the reward, strangely enough, is that they will receive yet more of his gifts to invest. He says, I will put you in charge over many things. Heavenly life is not a passive one. He wants to make us equal to the angels, ministers in his heavenly court, helping to run his kingdom. And our faithfulness with the little that we have received in this life will show him what he can entrust us with in the life to come. But the parable also has a warning for us. The one-talent guy. There's always that one guy in class who at the end of the semester cries out, Ah, it's so unfair. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. This assignment was impossible. And besides, I've heard from the other students what a hard grader you are. So, well, I just decided to not turn anything in. Then at least I can't get any red marks on my paper. Or the classic, life happened, can I please have an extension? And we hear the response, you must have buried your head in the sand as well as that talent. You've had the syllabus this whole time. And besides, your two friends on either side of you just turned in their assignments to glowing praise from the teacher. You have no excuse. But what Jesus has the master say next is fascinating. You should at least have put it in the bank and let the bankers invest it. Then I would have received what was my own with interest. Our Lord, the unashamed capitalist. What does that mean, putting it in the bank? The church fathers interpret the bankers here as the church. Jesus knows that not everyone is made for front lines, combat, and evangelism. Not everyone is an entrepreneur with the skills or knowledge to make disciples of the nations. But what they can do is give material support to the bankers who will invest it into those entrepreneurs or preachers or missionaries or evangelists or catechists who go out and make the profit directly. And then you collect dividends. Translation? Your tithing into the church, your regular participation as a member of the church, makes you a shareholder in the mission work that happens in and through this church for the growth of the kingdom of God. In the end, every student or family that comes to know Christ through our school, every person who finds healing through our future counseling center, or any person who finds wholeness and community when they walk through the doors of this church, and new life in Christ won't just bring reward to the clergy. It'll be counted as your reward also. God will consider that a return on his investment. So friends, we don't have to live aimlessly. Our blessed teacher has given us the syllabus. We might not have thought we were signing up for a practical economics of the kingdom course when we began, but here we go. So, take stock of the investment that God has made specifically in you. Develop it for the kingdom of God. 
and set your eyes on the prize that is coming to his faithful servants. And for the love of God, don't put your head or your talent in the sand. He wants it to grow. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.